Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Trump flipped Ohio in 2016. Can Democrats flip it back? The latest issue of The Deciders examines voters over 50 in Ohio and what's driving their vote. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on Nerdcast, is Me Too fully politicized because of Brett Kavanaugh? Plus, we're going to talk through the double lives of vulnerable House Republicans and what they're saying behind closed doors and what they're saying uh, in front of uh, TV audiences in their district. Before we begin, some news we're excited to share. Nerdcast will again be on stage at Politicon, the conference for political junkies, later this month. It's in Los Angeles. It's uh, October 20th and 21st, and we hope that we can see you there. And a reminder, stay tuned for the end of the show today for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. All right, let's get started. I'm going to welcome our first guest, Nancy Cook from Politico's White House team. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to have you here as always. We're going to dive right into our first data point and uh, part of a big story that Nancy wrote recently, and that's 55. 55% of women... Uh, polled by Quinnipiac University uh, earlier this week, said they opposed the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Uh, We're going to talk now about that nomination. Reminder, we're recording this Thursday around noon Eastern. So just a quick state of play at the moment. Senators are now this morning uh, viewing the results of the additional FBI background check of Kavanaugh that dealt with some of the allegations of sexual assault that, that he's faced in recent weeks. The Senate could have a final vote on confirming Kavanaugh, or I guess potentially not confirming him, as soon as this weekend. Uh, But for this segment, we're going to talk about something broader than the confirmation vote itself, and that's the politics that seem to be now infused with the the Me Too movement. Nancy, a couple weeks ago, you were on the show as a guest, and you described in some detail how Mitch McConnell and others had convinced President Donald Trump not to attack Christine Blasey Ford after she accused Kavanaugh of assaulting her back when they were both in high school. So that is no longer the case. The president has gone after her uh, in uh, pretty seriously uh, over the last few days. What changed? Well, I think what changed is that the president just decided that he was tired of it. Um, so the president really, you know, his... He started out, I think initially he did definitely want to hit back um, at Ford and against these allegations, but was basically talked off the ledge by Mitch McConnell and the White House's top attorney, Don McGahn, who I don't remember if I said this last time, but who behind Trump's back calls him King Kong. And so uh, Don McGahn calls Trump King Kong. And as I was talking to folks sort of um, around the confirmation process, um, you know, they call Trump just Kong. And so they were like, you know, Kong Kong is following the rules now. It was like a sort of a weekly update, like a weather report. Kong is following the rules. <laughs> and then it was like, actually, and so at the rally the other night, I texted someone and I said, um, 
Looks like Kong is laying it on on the table. What he's going through, 36 years ago, this happened. I had one beer, right? I had one beer. Well, do you think it was, nope, it was one beer. Oh, good. How did you get home? I don't remember. How'd you get there? I don't remember. Where is the place? I don't remember. How many years ago was it? I don't know. And the source texted me back and just said, King of the Monkeys. And so I feel like... (laughs) This is just like a window into what it's like to be a White House reporter. Um, granted, all this is happening at like 11 o'clock at night, which is also, Every, everyone's, pa- also everyone's part of a little my loopy. life. <laughs> everyone's a little loopy at this point, right? I'm it's not like- loopy. I'm still working. That's my point. But um, I, I bring this up because, A, it's funny, but B, because it gives you a sense of how the Senate and Don McGahn and aides in the White House view Trump and the way that they try to contain him. And they feel like they can't contain him, but... You know, they try. And and there was a sense that he wasn't, um, you know, that, that him being on good behavior and sort of saying that they wanted to hear from her was good. Um, but then, you know, basically he, he sort of started to get irritated and you could tell he was, you know, that the talk sort of escalated when he was at the U.N. last week. I was there with him and he sort of started to talk more and more about how sympathetic Brett Kavanaugh was. And then that resulted in what we saw at the rally this week where he basically started to to make fun of Ford and make fun of how many beers she had and how she couldn't remember. And people in the White House, to be fair, were not happy about that. People in the White House and people in the Senate weren't happy that he had gone that far. But I think that what they were okay with was sort of these milder attacks on Ford's memory. And there's this sense that she maybe was assaulted, but not by Kavanaugh. And those are things that they are comfortable with. Trump just took it, as he usually does, like one step further. And now we, the data point that we kicked off this segment with was 55. We're talking about a majority of women who who are now saying in this poll that they oppose Kavanaugh's confirmation. On the, on the flip side, you've got Republicans right now talking about how they see this fight over Kavanaugh's past and potentially confirming him to the Supreme Court as something that has galvanized Republicans, uh, Republican voters, base voters, uh, to get more involved in the midterms than they ever have been. And so you're seeing this just another inflection, uh, another point of polarization in the many, many, many that we've counted up uh, over the last couple years, maybe a little more now, that... uh, centering on an issue that really was not fully politicized before, but it seems like we're getting to a point where sexual assault now is fully politicized. Absolutely. And I really think that this week has been an inflection point on that because, you know, before we saw a lot of different types of people felled by the Me Too movement, and that included, you know, Harvey Weinstein, a big movie producer, but who was also a Democratic donor. But that also included the former Fox News pundit, Bill O'Reilly or the head of Fox News, Roger Ailes. And so it sort of swept up everybody. Senator Al Franken. Yeah, Senator Al Franken. Thank you. And so it kind of swept up everybody regardless of politics. But this week, what we have seen happen is Republicans have basically tried to turn the Kavanaugh uh, questions and the allegations about him and and sort of the allegations that he has lied, you know, the whole raft of things. Um, And they're trying to say that this is part of a Democratic led plot to smear a good man and that will keep people from public service. And that has been 
the line, partly of Trump, but really by, you know, Republicans and conservatives, conservative women groups um, have really taken up that mantle, too. And then meanwhile, you see the Democrats taking the opposite tact where, you know, Republicans are trying to sort of minimize this, not make it about me too, just call it a Democratic smear. And meanwhile, Democrats are trying to blow this up into like a huge narrative. You know, this is a narrative that encompasses me too, women not being heard. And so it's this interesting moment of one side minimizing, one side trying to blow it up. But really, like basically, you know, sexual assault is not a partisan thing. Um, You know, it happens to all types of women. Um, And so I I think it's, you know, a pretty important moment culturally. And and I'll be curious to see with these stories in the future about politicians and business people and media leaders, does this partisan sheen get projected on all of these allegations now? And we've seen this week in another poll from the uh, Public Religion Research Institute, they ask people if they would consider still consider voting for or definitely not vote for a candidate accused of sexual harassment. And I thought it was really interesting. What we saw in there, even more than the breakdown by gender, was a breakdown by party. Now, 56% of Republicans said they would still consider voting for a candidate who was accused of sexual harassment. And that was 61% of men, but also 48% of Republican women. Meanwhile, among Democrats, just 16% said they would still consider voting for candidate accused of sexual harassment, um, which obviously things have come a long way since Bill Clinton was elected in, in 1992. And a lot of this is colored by the fact that Trump himself has been accused of sexual harassment, sexual assault by a number of women. Uh, but I, I, I just the, the fact that a plurality of Republican women were still um, saying that they would consider voting for someone accused of this uh, versus the you know pretty stark numbers among Democrats I thought was was a pretty interesting illustration of this point. It is stark. And I also think you have to remember that all of these different industries and parts of the country have been upset by the Me Too movement. But Washington, even before the Kavanaugh stuff, there were limits on the way uh, where politicians were willing to go on Me Too. So, uh, you know, Al Franken resigned and left the Senate after um, there were allegations against him. But you have to remember that the House and Senate have had a terrible time passing Um, you know, basic laws about how they will handle sexual harassment within their own ranks and the investigations that they'll do. And and that doesn't have to do with like any specific allegations. That's just passing sort of rules about how internally they're going to handle things. And I feel like Washington and politics is one area that has been very resistant to change on this. Um, and I think you can see that with, uh, you know, the, the lack of ability to pass these laws, but also just uh, the way that this Kavanaugh stuff has turned so partisan. You talked with some folks for your story who reflected on some of the dangers of or what, what, what they see as dangers in this politicization of this going forward. What did they say? What are they concerned about? Well, one of the most interesting things I found in reporting is that, you know, conservative women are very, very fired up about this Kavanaugh issue. Um, I talked to this woman, Peggy, Penny Nance, excuse me, who runs this conservative women group um, called Concerned Women for America. And she herself is a survivor of sexual assault. Um, And so she's very, you know, empathetic to people who make these allegations. However, the argument that she made to me is that she feels like, uh, you know, Ford's allegations weren't corroborated. She felt like, uh, you know, they needed more evidence if they were going to move ahead with this. And because there wasn't an evidence, she saw it as a political smear. 
Um, and meanwhile, Democrats, you know, there's a bunch of progressive groups that are very fired up on this. Everyone from, and uh, you know, abortion rights groups like NARAL to move on to demand justice, which is this new progressive group that has sort of formed in the shadow of Kavanaugh. And they're pointing to a whole bunch of things about Kavanaugh that they find problematic. Uh, you know, that includes obviously the allegations of sexual misconduct against him, but also the fact that you know, they feel like he lied during his testimony about a bunch of things. They feel like he wasn't clear about his record uh, in the Bush White House. They feel like he's overly partisan. Um, they feel like he lied about even sort of identifying and defining basic terms like devil's triangle or boofing, which he called drinking games, which, uh, you know, mean other things if you look them up in the Urban Dictionary. And so it's just this interesting moment where people are seeing things so differently based on where they're coming from politically. And I find it a little like crazy as a reporter because, you know, if you extrapolate at 30,000 foot feet, at some point, life has to be based on facts. And it feels like in this in this current political era, there's just fewer and fewer facts that we can draw on, like facts that people agree on and data that people agree on. And if you don't have like a common sense of facts, what are you left that you can talk about with each other? Well, I think I think what we're finding out with this is that you're left uh, talking about interpretation of uh, the way that those those statements are are delivered, right? And especially with with respect to Ford's testimony. Um, well, and you're left screaming at each other, like mm-hmm. everybody's just left screaming at each other all the time. Uh, well, that is a highly uplifting thought, and one that I think we can uh, we we can uh, call time on this segment with. That's, that's my time. That's my role here. <laughs> Bring in the sunshine every Thursday. Well, thank you so much for for coming in to talk us through that, though, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. Coming up, we're going to talk to our colleague Rachel Bade about a. A couple of House races and which retiring member of Congress once gave her the middle finger. We'll answer that question and more, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Trump flipped Ohio in 2016. Can Democrats flip it back in 2018? The latest issue of Politico magazine's series, The Deciders, examines working class voters over 50 in Ohio and what's driving their vote. Will it be populism or pragmatism that wins this November? And which way will the tide turn? View the latest Politico AARP poll results and read the latest issue of Politico magazine's new series, The Deciders, at politico.com slash the deciders. Healthcare is already the biggest industry in America, and it's still growing. But it's not all surgeons and doctors. How we get that care and who delivers it is changing by the day. You know, being a home health aide is not being a maid to anybody. It's about helping someone that cannot help themselves. I'm Dan Diamond, and this month on Politico Pulse Check, we're exploring some of the quickest changing and fastest growing jobs in healthcare and what draws people to them. Listen to our series on these health workers by searching for Politico Pulse Check wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're going to move on to our next data point, which is the number two. There seem to be two sides to a lot of the campaigns that Republicans are running this fall. On the one hand, there's an appeal to the base of the Republican Party, those voters who are all in on President Trump. But they're also having to appeal to more moderate voters whose support Republicans will need to hold on to the House. Maybe some of these folks are independents. Some of them might be Republicans who have soured on the president despite being members of the party for a long time. We got a great look this week into the double lives 
that Republicans are leading on the campaign trail thanks to our next guest. And that's Rachel Bade, who covers Congress for Politico, in particular, the leadership of the House. Rachel, good to see you. Happy to be here. We're going to talk through the story focusing on a particular race, and that's Virginia's 7th Congressional District. That's the home of Dave Bratt, the Republican incumbent in the Richmond area. And our listeners may remember him from that enormous upset in 2014 where he beat then-House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. So he he beat Cantor. He's very he's he came at him from the right. He's now a member of the House Freedom Caucus, very conservative. But he's cultivating a more moderate image, at least some of the time. And we can listen now to this recent ad that he's running in the Richmond area. For nearly two decades, Dave Bratt taught economics and business. Now he's taking those tested principles to Washington to fix our economy for the next generation. Who knew? A mild-mannered teacher delivering results. But Rachel, and th- this is where your great reporting from this week comes in. There's a different message behind closed doors, which we know about because you got a tape of what happens behind closed doors. Tell us about that. What's this tape of? How did you How did you get it? What did you find? So first of all, I would say this tape is more of the Dave Bratt that I know from covering him on the Hill for the past few years. Less um, of the mild-mannered right, college professor. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so um, basically, I got, I got this from a source um, who had somebody who was in the room recording and they sent it to us. And it's a fundraiser Brad is doing with um, House Freedom Caucus leader Jim Jordan, who's sort of this arch conservative, big supporter of the president. Um, And uh, they're talking red meat issues here. They're talking about uh, praising the president. Um, Jordan at one point says, we in the House need to do more to support the president, which is interesting because a lot of um, independents right now want a check on the president. And that's becoming the whole election has been about sort of do people put Democrats in power to put to give a check on the president and sort of counter uh, what they see as chaos in the White House. But Jordan is arguing that Republicans, Brat included at this fundraiser, should be doing more to help the president uh, sort of get his agenda through. And so this is obviously uh, a very conservative uh, group of people. And again, it's the brat I know because he is in the Freedom Caucus and he has always been on the far right as a big pain, actually, in the side of Speaker Paul Ryan, always pushing the conference to the right. But Brad on TV in his district is sort of um, pitching himself to voters as, again, this sort of mild-managed college professor. Some of the ads talk about saving kittens and bipartisan laws that will stop federal agencies from testing dogs, things that everybody agrees with, things like um, preventing opioid abuse um, and uh, overdoses. These are bipartisan bills. So two very different sides of Brad. Um, He's talking again to the Republicans in this uh, fundraiser we're here. From. Right. And so now, you know, th- there are a few kind of evocative moments from from that fundraiser that, you know, a few of the chants that are breaking out early in the event here. But then there, there's this other bit that I thought was was also pretty evocative, uh, where where Brat is describing how he how he wants to go about a, a cable TV appearance that's coming up and what what he wants to say and what he wants to focus on. And and I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, he makes a joke about how he went back and watched Jim Jordan on Fox News, uh, specifically talking about the Russia investigation, the FBI's investigation into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. This is something that Jim Jordan has been trying to sort of undercut the FBI and discredit this investigation for months now. He's their top antagonist on the Hill. So and his basic that, argument is that is that this is a witch hunt, yeah. right? One hundred percent, a deep witch state, hunt. Yes, deep state whole... witch hunt, and and he's been out on TV all the time. Dave Bratt notably has avoided this issue up until recently. 
that before on Fox today. I had to talk about the dossier and all that stuff. So I got all nervous because I just know economics. <laughs> so, last night I did what any rational person would do. I got a press conference with Jim George speaking the day before and copied it today on the news. <laughs> He said he played back some clips of Jordan, parroted him on TV, and the reception was great. Everybody started applauding and started laughing. But again, this is not the Dave Bratt that he is presenting in his district right now. Mm-hmm. That that bipartisan, almost nonpartisan issue, right? It's that it's not it's not even that it's two parties coming together. It's that it has nothing to do with politics as we think of it, right? It's he's getting stuff done. That's right. the image he's trying to he's trying to present. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of what GOP leadership is telling vulnerable Republicans to do right now. Bratt's district has gone from this sort of Republican stronghold uh, to one that is a toss-up, and he could very well lose. Um, And so Republican leadership, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, they've been telling these guys, ignore the drama in Washington, you know, don't talk about the president per se, just talk about your achievements, focus on legislation, uh, tout things that everybody likes, bipartisan things. And this is, again, a lot different. um, What he was talking about in terms of Fox News parroting Jim Jordan is a very different strategy than GOP leadership has been encouraging him to take. And this is this is not just one one district we're seeing here. There are, I, I think, the thing that's most interesting about this is that there are a lot of districts like this around the country, right? Where you've got this, you know, this particular district. It's Richmond suburbs, and you've got a lot of kind of uh, upper middle class white voters kind of clustered around there. But then it stretches out into into rural areas where Donald Trump really blew the doors off in in 2016, right? And obviously he didn't he didn't win Virginia, but he did I think better than than a lot of Republicans before him had done in those areas of Virginia. And there's a lot of districts like this around the country where you get kind of suburbs tailing off into rural areas. One of them actually in in Jim Jordan's backyard, you know, in in Ohio and we saw that special election uh, in the 12th district in August and that was also uh you know, Columbus suburbs but then out into the rural counties and basically the further and further you got from Columbus, the better and better the Republican vote got. And that's what ended up dragging Troy Balderson, now Congressman Troy Balderson, over the finish line. Yeah. And Jordan specifically mentioned Balderson in um, his talk to these Republicans at this fundraiser. He said, um, we Republicans, no matter how swingy our districts may be, the the way to keep your seat is to tack to Trump, hug Trump, be um, a Trump ally. And he pointed to Balderson and he said, listen, Balderson was underwater in early voting in Ohio. He was doing a bunch of cookie cutter ads. He was talking, John Kasich, a more moderate Republican who's obviously um, a nemesis. Not a Jim Jordan Republican. Yeah, a nemesis of the president. Uh, he was not doing well uh, in this campaign strategy. In comes the president just a few hours before voters show up at the polls and Balderson is able to to basically stick this out and get it across the finish line. And Jim Jordan said that is a perfect example of why even in swing districts that seem scary, where there's a bunch of Democrats, a bunch of independents who potentially don't like the president, you need to, to tack to the president to get out those Trump voters. And again, this just highlights this impossible situation Republicans are finding themselves in, where they need Trump voters to show up. They need that group of uh, people who were angry and showed up at the polls in 2016 for the first time in a long time to come out to support them, even though Trump is not on the ballot. But while they do that, if they're if they're talking about issues that sort of rev up that piece of the electorate, they're really alienating or risking alienating Democrats, uh, but also really critically those independent voters who potentially could vote Republican, but really don't like the president and so go a different direction because of the tone they're taking. Mm -hmm. And you could easily imagine 
how this backfires, right? Balderson was able to win, but he had Kasich in his ads trying to get enough of those suburban Republicans who used to vote for Kasich in that congressional district decades ago, right? He, Kasich was talking to them and trying to get them to come home. and and But then also Trump talked, but you could imagine instead of it working, you could imagine both of those messages just turning off the other part of the coalition and everything completely falling apart right. in, in one of these places. Right. I think Republicans there were sort of just hoping that people would hear what they wanted to hear. You know, the moderate Republicans, they were hearing Kasich saying he supported Balderson. And then the president came in at the last minute, rallied those people who may not like Kasich to come to the polls, and they were able to sort of uh, push it over the finish line that way. There are a few other districts where you kind of gathered tidbits for for your reporting on this story. In particular, there, were, there was uh, an interesting uh, bit about Diane Harkey, who um, I mean, I, I thought this was interesting because this this district is is actually a little bit not like some of the others we've been talking about. This is a much more just overall very suburban right, district, and right. th- there is a little bit less of that kind of rural Trump base to activate outside San Diego. Uh, and yet, what's she doing? Uh, she's clearly worried. Uh, we got some um, audio recording of her talking to her supporters, and she was expressing concern that Trump voters were not going to show up in her district and that that was going to hurt her. You know, Trump voters are not really excited to turn out. Hopefully, we can get them to turn out. They don't, they, they'll turn out for the presidential. They're not necessarily going to turn out for this. We need to get the Trump voters out. And again, you know, this is a district Daryl Issa won by only a couple thousand votes last time around. It's one of the reasons why Daryl Issa, who is an incumbent from California, former oversight chairman who loved his job and loved being in Congress, retired because it was going to be a tough race. Um, But again, she is not worried so much about those independents, it sounds like, privately. She was worried about the Trump voters and would they turn out to support someone like her who has sort of painted herself as more of a moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another district. There, there was this great moment in the 2016 campaign where ISA, who, as you mentioned, had been the oversight committee chairman, actually sent out mailers touting with his picture next to Barack Obama's touting. I can't remember what it was, something that they had worked on together. Oh, and my gosh. O- yes. Obama Obama came to yes. the district and accused him of uh, having uh, chutzpah, which I thought was a nice touch. Perfect <laughs> foreshadowing to what we're seeing this cycle, because Issa, as chairman of the Oversight Committee, was Obama's chief antagonist on the Hill. He went after the IRS. He accused Obama of targeting conservative nonprofits. Uh, Fast and Furious, they accused the Justice Department of losing guns that ended up killing uh, Americans uh, by legal smugglers, they were 100 percent a pain in Obama's side in the administration. So for him to go out there and suggest that they were buddy-buddy was laughable, to say the least. Also, um, Issa, we gotta, I got to add this here, just because I know him so well, and he was the one who uh, flipped me off that one time. He, um, <laughs> w- this... Um, uh, the healthcare debate, that was when this was before he announced he was retiring, but there was a lot of energy in his district when Republicans were trying to repeal Obamacare. And ISA uh, in this district was not, he wouldn't say how he was going to vote for a long time. And so that sort of led to the instance where I was chasing him down the hall. And he didn't want to answer because he didn't want to show that secretly he does support the repeal, but if he supported the repeal, it would hurt him back in his district ended up giving me the middle finger instead. Issa, of course, uh, retiring. That's that's now basically one of Democrats' top pickup opportunities right. uh, in the entire country, uh, this time a, a district that was thought to be solidly Republican until uh, 2016. But it just it just goes to show how uh, fast some of these currents are moving and, and how fast things are changing for not just 
in places like that before the Dave Bratz of of the world and mm-hmm. kind of people who um, were at the at the vanguard of this uh, kind of movement in Republican primaries in the early part of the decades to uh, push the party there. And now all of a sudden it's general elections that are that are on their mind. And right. Balancing and, all those imperatives. And they really the only way they can really do this is to have, like our headline says, a sort of a double life is to talk one way to Republicans in the district and try to turn them out and hope that, you know, what they're saying to this group doesn't uh, get back to the more moderate independent Republicans who perhaps want to check on the president. They don't want the president uh, to get more of an ally in Congress, as in as what we have seen with Dave Bratt's district. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for coming in to uh, talk us through that race. Anytime. Okay, as promised, before we wrap up here, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. Victoria Gaetan of New York is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Victoria. Listeners, we found Victoria because she emailed to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. Welcome. No, wait. No. <clears throat> Got to work out the kinks before we do it live in a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh